Welcome to Oakhill's Deep Roots podcast, Conversations about Theology and Ministry. My name's Tim Ward. I'm one of the lecturers here at Oakhill. Now, my my normal co-host sidekick here, Eric Ortland, is indisposed. He's got a bit of a cold and very kindly he agreed to stay away <laughs> so he didn't breathe germs all over us here in Oakhill's secret um, uh, film studio bunker. But very kindly, uh, he's got a replacement. I'm not going to say it's better, it's just different, and that's good. <laughs> well, there are big shoes to fill, but I'll, I'll see what I can do. Uh, my name is Matt Bingham. I am also one of the lecturers here at Oak Hill. Uh, I teach systematic theology and church history. And our special guest on Deep Roots uh, this month is um, our friend and colleague, Christy Mayer. Christy, thanks so much for coming down. You didn't even know where this room was in the building, did you? I got locked out. <laughs> There's a corridor just outside and uh, it was completely locked. In fact, I, Matt Bingham found me wandering the corridors upstairs, just, you know, yeah, we, aimless. We, we don't want everyone finding this place, <laughs> but we're glad you did. Well, thanks for having me. It's now, a joy to be with you. Christy, obviously Matt and I know what you teach, but for those listening in, we, tell us what you do here. Uh, I get to teach philosophy, ethics um, and apologetics here. I'm in my fourth fourth year fourth year, and I'm a research fellow, which means that I also get to do my, my doctorate part-time alongside teaching. Okay. Um, he, this is always a dangerous question to ask someone who's doing a PhD, yeah. what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, give us the 30-second comprehensible to everybody version. What, what kinds of things are you interested in that you're studying? Oh, I, oh 30 seconds. <gasps> Pressure. Um, I, knowledge, knowing, how do we know what we know? And particularly looking at a guy called Michael Polanyi, who, Hungarian, close to my heart, former scientist, turned philosopher, and his particular understanding of, of, of knowledge, how knowing works. Yep. Yeah, he's, he's quite fun, so I'm looking at him. Okay, good. The Hungarian close to my heart thing. Yeah. Again, we kind of know, but Hungary close to your heart? Oh, very much so, Tim. Yeah, very much so. Um, I'm Hungarian. I was born in Hungary. All my, my family remain kind of between Hungary and Romania. And I moved over to the UK when I was about eight or nine, something like that. And that, and that PhD, knowing, how do we know? <laughs> so is that philosophy? Is that theology? Is that a mix of the two? Yeah, it's philosoph philosophical theology. Yeah. So it, it kind of straddles both of them. I'm kind of looking at his particular philosophy of, of knowing, but I'm trying to kind of think about what does it look like to think theologically about his, his philosophy. Tremendous. Now you write and speak at a really high level and at also really everyday comprehensible levels. Because, hey, guess what, Matt? <laughs> you see what I have here? It's more truth, Jim. <laughs> it's called more Truth. It's got a symbol on it. We don't quite know how to pronounce that symbol, do we? It's a silent symbol. No. It's a silent. <laughs> yes. So the book is called More, More Truth, Truth. <laughs> by, oh, by Christy May. By Moi. Tremendous. <laughs> Thank you. This came out a couple of years ago. It did, uh, yeah. It's been really well received. We really, uh. we're joking. We really, <laughs> we Sorry, I'm up, ripping it up. Up to this point, we have been joking. We really like this book. Tell us, what, what were you trying mm. to do in this book? Uh, well, I got to write it um, because my editor at IVP, Elizabeth Nape, hello if you're watching, she wanted to put together a series of, of books that really served um, young Christians who'd recently come to know Jesus, but were really thinking, does my faith stand up to scrutiny or not? And, and for those who are thinking, well, I think I might leave the church actually because of these big issues that I just don't know how to address. And so at the time, and, and even now, you know, thinking about post-truth, what is truth? Mm. How can I trust that this something is true um, are big questions. So she asked, well, could you write just a very short book on that, which helps helps like young Christians in those particular kind of churches just think through 
um, why it is that their faith is is good and why Jesus stands up to scrutiny. So that's really what I was trying to do in that very short, um, in a very short book with lots of stories and just looking at um, Jesus's words in, in John when he says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. Yeah. What does he mean by that? Tremendous. Now, we're going to get into some details and start picking up. Uh, discussing around some topics, but, but just, for those who don't know, you just as well as your teaching here on philosophy, apologetics, evangelism, uh, you get invited to go into various places. Quite rightly, people are saying there's someone here's worth bringing in to teach us on things. So, just tell us some of the topics that you find yourself invited to to speak about to various groups of church leaders and people in ministry. Oh, it's really kind, Tim. Thanks. I This is one of the things that I really love about my work, actually, is that I get to kind of teach it and also I get to kind of live it in a way and give it room to breathe. And um, so, yeah, I, I get to be um, invited to what kind of things I've done recently. I spoke at, well, I speak at local churches, training them in how to um, think about conversational evangelism, how do you kind of address the big questions, the big objections to Christian faith? Mm. Um, I've done that quite a bit. Um, I help with female evangelists. There's a great network that wants to equip and train female evangelists. I've done some stuff on um, how can we communicate the incarnation at Christmas time. Um, I've also done some stuff um, wonderfully. Well, there are different festivals like Creation Fest in the South. Um, again, how, communicating truth. How do we do that? Um, ELF, the European Leadership Forum, I get to go... Um, shortly in May and the past couple of years it's been online mm. but I was speaking there on, on apathy and how do we engage the apathetic um, so there's a, there's a great kind of mixture of stuff really of um, either local churches uh, regional and national events or particular kind of groups of people thinking about um, reaching people in the workplace like in the London Stock Exchange or um, other outreach events that, that local churches or Christians in the workplace are wanting to put on so that others can come and um, just to see the goodness of, of Jesus in community and hear more about him. Fantastic. It's great to hear what colleagues do outside of the building. Mm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, mentioned speaking on apathy there and engaging people who are apathetic. And I mean, that, that's really interesting to me, actually, because um, for a while there, you know, back when, I don't know, when was it Richard Dawkins was sort of the mm. big name, and we think of this really aggressive anti-Christian polemic. And in some ways, I think, thinking apologetics wise that actually feels easier and and more comfortable Mm. in a sense isn't it It gives you something to latch on to here's a critique here's a criticism and i'm going to show how it's erroneous it's misguided whatever um but the apathetic person that that's a different um sort of problem altogether how how did you get onto that topic and and what that kind of look like Mm. Um, I think I was asked to speak on it mainly because, um, as you mentioned, with Richard Dawkins and, and others who've been very big voices in particular places in the UK. Um, but for the most part, that's not really where you know your, your everyday person is really at. You know, they haven't read Dawkins. You were talking about this the other day, weren't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. And they don't really, you know, they haven't read his books. They don't know what he's about. And for anyone watching, thinking, oh, yeah, Richard Dawkins, that's ringing a bell. Hang on, just give us again. Give us a 30 seconds reminder on Richard Dawkins. Ah, so he was one of the, well, <laughs> he was dubbed one of the henchmen of the apocalypse along with a couple of Ooh, uh. few other names. I okay. know it's quite, <laughs> I mean, what a title. Um, along with Daniel Dennett, Sam Harrison and others who are these key kind of intellectuals in the universities who really just very much um, hate God and want to intellectually show, allegedly, why it is um, that everyone else should 
agree with them. So this is really kind of militant atheism. Exactly. They are utterly certain. Exactly. That God is a pile of nonsense. Yes, and you too are stupid if you believe that that the good God, God can possibly exist. I want to persuade people out of what he thinks is the st- utter stupid, evident stupidity. Yes. Of yeah. believing God. Oh, this is all the heyday, what, like 10, 15 years mm. ago? Mm. Okay. However. Uh, however. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think they just left a bit of a vacuum. So as you say, it was about 10 to 15 years ago. Um, and at the time, in particular circuits, these were the, the big um, questions that people were addressing, was trying to think, how do we respond to people like this? Yeah. Um, and then people responded <laughs> to people like that very persuasively and very well. You know, you think about mm. John Lennox, um, who you know, is, is, a, is a wonderful man in mind who teaches, I forget now, is it physics and mathematics? Um, and he, so he did a lot of work responding to them. But then after that, there was just this kind of emptiness, this kind of vacuum of meaning where, where people started to think, well, I'm now starting to see that if what Dawkins and others are saying is true, then that means there are certain things that I have to get rid of. So I think one of the one of the the, the kind of hinge points was when Peter Singer, who is he does a lot of work in ethics and thinking about morality, right and wrong, and um, he was saying that it's morally permissible to um, abort a baby post part like post birth, <laughs> and so lots of people after that thought, whoa, how ca- that's not. That's not right. Yep. So the logical outworkings of my atheism, just it, it, it's not at all emotionally or intellectually satisfactory to me. Mm-hmm. But so I still want to uphold in some way that there is this kind of, there's, there's meaning, there's almost like the sanctity of life, that life is precious. But how do I do that without God? And so there was this big kind of, um, big vacuum and opportunity that that created to then start to, the conversation about God after that so then there's actually much more kind of spiritual intrigue um thinking about you know questions of faith now than there ever have been because of the militant atheists they've kind of shown that their own position doesn't stand up to scrutiny but then what do we do with these desires with these longings that we have and the um the lurch that we have towards meaning and truth and purpose so that's just all just a very long way to say that um there's there's this kind of desire to want more but then after that, probably, I think in the past, maybe three to four years, there's, there, there has been cultivated a, a kind of an apathy mm-hmm. towards, towards God and to those questions. So you'll find now that if you were to ask somebody, um, do you think that a good God you know, can exist? They'll probably say, I, I don't really know. I don't, I don't really care. You know, it's what you believe is what you believe. What do you think? You know, that's fine. Um, And so that's, that's the point that, that now we're starting to pick up the conversation and think, okay, how do we talk to people where they're at right now, which is more of the, what somebody else has called, it's a trained benign indifference. It's not something that's happened overnight. A trained benign indifference. Yeah. Talk, Talk us through each of those words. Yeah. So this isn't something that people just have woken up one day and said, you know what, I now want to be apathetic. I, I've now decided that I don't want to care um, about God and his existence. Mm-hmm. It's something that has that has been um, that has been. Well, I guess it's something that, that they've been trained to do. I'm trying to think of another word. Other yeah, than yeah. trained. It's, it's been cultivated. It's been developed intentionally. So what, what kinds of things cultivate us in this? Mm. There's a guy called um, Jonathan Roach who is an is an economist, 
and an activist and he writes for the Atlantic Monthly. Back in 2003, he wrote an article on apatheism. And in that article, um, he, he addresses... He addresses this in its entirety, saying that what has what has led to this rise of apathy is um, uh, religious extremism. So as you look at, you know, um, 9-11 and all of the other um, like awful attacks that have taken place in Europe and in the UK and elsewhere, um, this kind of religious extremism has led people to think, well, if that's where religion takes you, then then I don't really want anything to do with that. So you can do that over there and so it's led to this kind of trained well I'm just going to train myself to not think about it because if I think about it then obviously that leads to this kind of hideous manifestation of of religion which I don't want anything to do with Mm -hmm. so again it's all part and parcel of you know this is this is my truth you know tell me yours you can take it or you know leave it there are are lots of different ideas that's fine Um, and so they've just trained themselves not to care and almost shut off Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I was in Birmingham for quite a while before I came to um, London. And I remember walking, um, I was outside New Street Station. And you go out down by the ball ring. There are all these shops. And you can't really walk maybe a few hundred yards without having um, either a, a Christian standing in the, in, in the street kind of saying, repent, you know, the time is nigh, um, repent. And then you walk a few a few kind of yards down, and then you can hear the Quran being mm. um, um, audibly. You can hear it audibly; it's, it's being played. Um, and so the, the, there are Muslim friends over there who are, you know, wanting to tell you about Islam. And then you go a little bit further, and then there's this like, a spiritualist group, and you go a bit further, and then then you see the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so there's just this competing marketplace yeah. of different um, religious ideas. And so people have kind of trained themselves just to not hear. It's better to just. You know, it's fine. In, it's just the cacophony of these different noises leads people to like retreat, and so you put up this wall of yeah. apathyism. Well, apathy, sorry, apathyism, something else, and say, well, you know, I, I'm trying to protect myself from it, um, but also I just don't care because it's so loud that I'm just trying to make myself immune to it. So it's benign in that way. It's not malevolent. It's not okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. nasty. I got I got about three questions that came into my mind all at the same time. Because you're a historian, you've been a pastor. Pick pick whichever ones of these you want. Here's the historian question: the no, first no. century in which the scriptures were written, mm. the New Testament scriptures, um, that was very like this competing marketplace of religious ideas. Mm. So, do we see some of this back in the first century? But you've also been a pastor. Did you encounter this? in your ministry in the United States. Answer either of those. We'll talk about something else, Matt, whatever you like. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it's really interesting, isn't it? And talking about um, these different this sort of clash of ideas and a sort of almost shut down response rather than in, engage with any of them. Um, and I, I I wonder hearing that as, as well, um, think about this concept of, of apathy and think about people I've known um, you know, it, the the sort of this idea, this secularization mm-hmm. thesis, this idea that as modernity advances, as civilization, you know, progress, uh, technological progress, industrial progress, um, rising levels of affluence, that sort of the need for some sort of religious explanation just gets sort of squeezed out. People sort of have fullness in their material sort of present uh, frame. And there's just no 
um, need, there's no desire uh, for anything more. And Christianity very much um, seems like a less live option in, in the way that um, some of those more sort of um, what have traditionally in, in this context been you know, smaller voices. Now Christianity just seems like one more sort of uh, competing voice. And um, it, it's sort of daunting, isn't it? Uh, where does one begin uh, engaging with a person who says, look, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy with my life. I have what I need. And when I hear you talking about Christian things, that very much feels like something from the past, uh, not something in the present, not something that uh, is going to inform the future. This is a piece maybe of heritage at best, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's, not, it's not living and, and vital and real. How do you, where, where do you begin a conversation with a person who says, look, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good, thanks. I don't need medieval superstition mumbo jumbo, which sounds very much like what you're offering. Yeah, it's such a great question. And I, I think that's exactly what um, some of the things that we're just thinking about at the moment is, is how to go about starting conversations like that. And often, I mean, I don't know what you think, Tim. I think you know, there are questions that we can ask. Sometimes that apathy is created as a result of Christians pretty much just talking at people <laughs> for quite a long time. Um, and and so one of the things that, that um, I found quite helpful to do, so just three questions, and one of them is asking, have you ever wondered? So really nobody's actually that apathetic. There are things that we all care about um, very deeply, that we have these ultimate commitments that every person holds to, and it's really just trying to first listen you know proverbs 18 you know to to talk <laughs> to talk without listen is a person's folly and shame and so firstly like listening to to others and but you can only listen to people if you know them well and you're in some mm-hmm. kind of friendship with them um and so i think it's it's listening to them as you start thinking about the bigger issues so it might not talk be um it might not be immediately talking about god <laughs> it might actually be talking about something in the paper to begin with um, for for example, I was um, I was at a spa and I was with a friend, and she was um, we were outside. I was just lounging about. It was really lovely. It was idyllic and <laughs> so idyllic that I was actually I think I was actually on Twitter at the time, and I found this um, article. Except um, there was a, a Christian doctor who'd been convicted for calling a um, a baby a human being in the womb, and I just thought, oh, this is. This is obviously, obviously outrageous. Obviously, my friend is going to agree with me that, you know, why has this person been been convicted for, for saying what is patently obvious, that this is a, a human being in utero? It's, it's not a dog. It's not a cat. It's a human being. And uh, I think I remember I, I showed it to her. I thought, oh, gosh, this is quite interesting. It's, you know, doctor. No, no, no. And just <laughs> she was so peaceful. And just in that moment, she just erupted. And she's like, why on earth do you have to bring something like that up right now? We're having such a nice time. I thought, I'm so sorry. You know, I didn't I didn't at all mean to ignite um, anything. I, I just thought it's like, yeah, well, you know, I just don't want to have a debate right now. You know, I just you know, it doesn't matter, you know, what I think about this. I like, oh, but, you know, I do I do care about what you what you think about this. She's like, no, 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 we just 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 leave it like we're having such a nice time. Let's just forget about it. So I did. And then. Um, later on, after um, she'd calmed down, we were talking about other things. I, you know, I said to her, "Why? You know, I noticed that you you responded quite strongly there." 
um, why, why do you think that was? And um, she just said, yeah, I, I think I, I just feel like I have to have an opinion on everything. And I just thought that was quite revealing on a couple of levels because the apathy stuff links in with something that the Greeks um, have this fancy word for it, which was um, ataraxia, which is this, this freedom um, from stress and worry. And so, so a lot of um, the apathy kind of hinges on this desire to just not to be mentally yeah, yeah. agitated. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't need to have an opinion on everything. And that was what she was pursuing was that kind of sense of just peacefulness. Mm. Um, but also it revealed something else, which was that it was a particular view of, of knowing that I was expecting her to have an answer on an article rather than it opening up a conversation. And so again, I think that just shows that there's just such um, a, a polarized and almost just like a tribal a tribalism that has kind of um, grown up, grown up that what you say you have to say with certitude, and it, what you say also reveals your cards of where you stand on on particular things. Mm. Um, and so I was like, oh, that's interesting. So really, what you're talking about is is knowing. Like, do we have to? Do you think we have to be certain before we can express? opinion on something so I started with those questions of how of um oh what do you mean by that why did you say that and then I could move the conversation on later and by asking her things or have you ever wondered dot 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 and we could talk about that article um and why did you say that so I think those kind of short questions can open up a lot in a in a conversation mm. where you know and you've listened to the other person beforehand mm. Mm. T tell us a bit more about this kind of apathy because I know that you it's something you just you're finding aren't you as you're engaging particularly with evangelism among university students and a kind of a rising generation and engaging with church leaders about it so t tell us what you see going on and yeah some more ways in which you think there are helpful ways in which we can begin to open up a conversation mm. yeah well I think yeah thank you Tim I think it's something that it's still it's still evolving in some ways because of course there are the human beings that are in front of us and so not not everybody will be as hardened in their apathy as, as every other person yeah. um one of the ways i think particular communities do it well is by being a a community and whether that's kind of churches or whether that's groups of christians on campuses is by inviting people in to just to taste the quality of redeemed relationships mm -hmm. in community with one another that also just shows off the credibility of the Christian faith. Um, and that that is a great way of, I think C.S. Lewis was talking about, just sneaking behind the dragons, you know, the watchful dragons that um, that are set over our hearts. You need to go around the back. You can sneak around those sleeping dragons, those watchful dragons, um, by bringing them into community like that because that isn't the place where you, you where if you do have that kind of lingering either resentment or questioning or just desire to switch off it's as you see people interacting with one another that that just very slowly starts to wear um wear down one's defenses and it opens people up to then ask questions so then you're more in one peter kind of territory and thinking about well yeah well why do you believe this stuff? Yeah, yeah, um, give yeah. me a reason for the hope that you have. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. D do you see this kind of thing happening just in life in the church you're a member of? Yeah, I, I, it, 
one of the things that raises for me is thinking about um, if I'm if I'm preaching, if I'm doing evangelistic work, if I'm doing one to one, whatever ministry I'm involved in, if I have somebody who at least outwardly says this stuff seems very irrelevant to my life, this seems again sort of almost uh, some sort of medieval sort of superstitious stuff. Um, you know, how do you how do you come at that? I'd, I'd be curious. You know, one thought would be, well, I want to sort of um, then present myself as, as as very much a normal person to whom they can relate, and I want to show how the things that I'm thinking sort of slide right into um, the the life and the culture that you know and are comfortable with, and actually it's it's not all that weird at all. And, and let me show you how. And and often I think that's a direction we want to pursue in in, in churches, and we want everyone to be comfortable. Um, the other th- direction, though, that sometimes you hear coming uh, are you, you hear stories about younger people, millennials and things who find themselves in, you know, churches where some of the distinctions and the differences are really emphasized. So sometimes this is when we're hearing about people who uh, find themselves wandering into um, more liturgical worship where they're sort of really emphasizing the uh, the strangeness and, and mm-hmm. the uh, the ways in which the Christian faith is a word from somewhere else it's, it's not like what you are used to and I'm wondering if you is there, do you think there's any place for emphasizing the sort of strangeness of Christianity and almost to, to, to wake people up from their apathy and say actually you know something's happening here uh, when these people gather for this thing we call worship that is is really a, a, a word from without this is something unlike what you're going to find at uh, you know IKEA or the shopping center, uh, this is something, um, yeah, strange, different. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I don't know. And just think about how how does the church itself and worship present an opportunity to sort of rouse people out of of their apathetic indifference mm-hmm. um, and wake them up a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's um, that reminded me of something that I, I spoke with um, a great guy. Um, called Philip Goff um, with Justin Briley on his unbelievable program. And he he was saying something very similar to, I think, to what you were just suggesting there, Matt, where he he will go into cathedrals and into these spaces because they evoke kind of a sense of awe and a sense of other and a, and a sense of just wonder that has, has just been lost <laughs> elsewhere. And at these, these sacred spaces, he recognises them as such. But he'd call himself a believer who doesn't believe. Um, he he wants the, the the almost the fruit of of that kind of experience, but not the the object and the content of the one who <laughs> who provides that. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, I mean, we're probably going a bit off piece now, but spaces in particular. And where's Matthew Sleeman? I'm sure he'd be able to speak more, much more into this, but. You know the, the the grandeur of the architecture is so evocative, and is able to communicate in ways um, that that transcends human speech. Um, at some at some points, I mean, I think John, he's recording this. He was he was trying to find a picture for your for your upcoming blog piece, I think, um, online, and um, I was and he found this. I noticed that he was looking at one of the the big um, cathedrals in Vienna. And every year I usually kind of get to go go to this uh, cathedral at St. Stephen's right in the centre of Vienna. And, you know, Mozart was there as a choir boy. And, you know, it's just this incredible, incredible kind of stunning um, architecture. 
and and people come like people come um to the services there because of the building but then the question is what well, how do you keep um people there so you, thinking about how do you evoke the the otherness you know i, I particularly in in worship settings i guess that isn't so much my own experience so mine is more kind of thinking about how do we um create spaces that 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 have, that excavate and and dig up the the desirability of of the christian faith mm. um which in, includes wonder and awe and in our communication but but not so much in terms of the 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 actual room in which it's taking place <laughs> so usually far more drab than this <laughs> but so you kind of, is this right you kind of think that the the ministry of a local church, if it majors on the rational defence of the gospel, it's not that that's a wrong-headed thing. We we need to give reasons. There will be people who want to say, "Tell me the evidence for the resurrection." You claim in the resurrection, give me some evidence. And we're not going. We're not going to say I have nothing to say. Mm. But actually, for most, is this what you're saying? For most people, increasingly, that's that's not why they don't believe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and for a particular. Um, age groups um, especially so very much for kind of baby boomers the the question was show me the evidence for the resurrection show me that this is trustworthy um, but but downstream of of that generation you have you know millennials um, um, gen x's gen z's who are who aren't asking those questions to begin with they get to those questions okay but the questions to begin with are is this relevant to my life apathy is this um, desirable? Um, is this livable? Can I wear this? And then if they've seen that this is desirable, they then ask, well, is it true? And so the ordering has kind of changed in the okay. past, you know, 10 to 15 years. Now, do, do, do you think it's an... Is it an act of faithlessness on behalf of the church, on behalf of the church to say, okay, if people are asking, is it relevant, I'm going to address that. If they're asking, is it workable? I, I'm going to present the gospel like that. There might always be perhaps something in some kinds of evangelicalism which have a sense of, if I start on that foot, am I am I being a little bit unfaithful mm. to to the truth? Mm. How, how do you work that one through? Mm. Oh, that's such a lovely question. And I guess that would be something that, I mean, I, I you know, that comes up in most of our hearts to some extent when you're thinking there are particular well-trodden ways in which we which we present the gospel. And if we, in some ways, kind of deviate from that, then we feel like we're now being unfaithful, as you say. And I guess this isn't actually a um, an undermining of that. It's more of a blossoming of what is already there. And so I mean, one of the things that I've noticed um, in my own Christian life, and, you know, this might be completely wrong, so please correct me, is that... Um, we're very quick to talk about propositional statements of of truth um but often in the preaching at least that i've heard it, it hasn't quite um resounded in my heart in such a way that i think ah oh, yeah god god loves me i know he loves sinners and i know he loves these people but how how is this actually relevant to me in my mm. life i can intellectually assent to it and of course it's the power of the spirit and his work who who illumines that to our hearts um but how you know the word on fire? You know how do we we preach? How do we preach the word um, in such a way that the hearts are gripped? And so I think thinking about 
desire like relevance um those kind of questions of um desirability should probably be part and parcel of of our preaching anyway okay so this isn't a separation of that Mm -hmm. it's it's more just foregrounding it and well you're homiletics guy tim so um you you have much more to you say. You just on do this. my job for me, bro. So <laughs> yeah. just keep going, preach it, sister. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So I I, I, I do, it's more kind of foregrounding those things okay. rather than yeah. yeah 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 in some way um, diminishing the gospel. Yeah. So the the way we're preaching and teaching it's it's always going to be communicating either this is a beautiful attractive truth mm. or it's not. It's you, you can't just say I convey the truth. And we'll leave all the aesthetics and how it feels and whether it's a whether it's a beautiful thing or not. And you can't just leave that all aside because the people listening to it, they're not just minds. They're, yes. They're, they're whole people. Yes. And even so you, to... You're yes. either communicating this truth is beautiful or you're communicating it's kind of not. Yeah. But, but you're never not addressing that issue. Yeah. And if you aren't communicating it in a way that is beautiful, then there is a question of are you actually communicating the truth? Okay. Mm. And don't you think? What do you think? If you're not communicating in a way that's beautiful, are you communicating the truth? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the Christian message has has a a beauty to it that is inseparable from its its truth. I mean, they are at, in a sense two sides of the same coin. Um, God is perfectly true. He's perfectly beautiful. Um, when we think about that, when we think about preaching, we think about ministry. Think about um, again this question of of apathy and and now you know we're almost now talking about the lives of of believers, aren't we? Professing mm-hmm. believers, professing Christians, who uh, struggle with actually the same cultural factors that are weighing on our non Christian friends are weighing on all of us as well, aren't they? We also live in a uh, world with incredible options for entertainment and uh, things to do with our time, things to distract us. You know, we have these phones in our pockets, obviously, that have this whole world uh, brought right to us. And it, I think Christians feel that pull as well and, and feel, okay, you know, is there something here that, that, uh, is, that, that I can get excited about? And uh, communicating that uh, as opposed to just the sort of more, here's five reasons for the resurrection but here's uh, why the resurrection actually is the most significant event uh, ever that speaks to your deepest longings and this kind of thing. How do you communicate that well? Uh, it seems to be just as relevant for uh, Christians as non-Christians. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Christy, if you're just bringing this into land, we, let's just think about just the lives of local churches. We're, we're all members of local churches. Um, and I think this is an issue for every Christian, pastors as well, but certainly for every Christian. I was really intrigued by that switch you were talking about, you know, in general terms, as you mm-hmm. were saying, if maybe in the past a lot of people were coming with, they wanted to know about evidence. Show me the evidence for the resurrection. I'm a scientific kind of person. Opening question. Now, fewer people, that's their approach. More often their approach is almost, there is no approach other than, hey, I'm cool if you're cool and it's all fine. <laughs> now you're saying, well, stick with people. And if they see something of the quality of the lives of Christians, um, the life in Christ uh, that he's brought in the spirit, that we, that we live in our local churches, if they can see some of that over a period of time, they will begin to ask, now tell me the reason for the hope that's in you. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I wrestled with this a bit as a pastor, uh, and I still wrestle it now. Now I'm no longer a pastor, but a member of a church. 
So, so how do you stay in relationship with people? How can what, what can churches do? What can members of churches do? What do we need maybe to tweak in the way we just do our life as Christians mm. to allow people in while they're not asking any questions at all, apparently, at least on the surface? Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been thinking about this recently. And as I look at my own life and I look at the, the friendships that I have, and this might not be you know true for everyone, and it's much harder now actually um, living here than it has been before, but um, it's it's cultivating and maintaining genuine friendships with people, not because you want to at some point preach the gospel to them, though that would be wonderful to be able to share such goodness with them, but because you want to honour and love and care for them as a as a fellow human being made in the image of God. People very quickly can see through um, any kind of mm. tactics, insincerity, um, and rightly so, we can all do that. Um, and so thinking then, well, what does it look like for me to, to cultivate and to maintain those kind of relationships? It can be very difficult and it very much depends, doesn't it, on um, our age and stage in life, um, our particular commitments, family commitments, all sorts of things. But one thing that most of us will have after university uh, at some point is either um, a work, a workplace or a, a hobby um, or a favourite book or a favourite meal, <laughs> or a restaurant that we like going to, um, or music that we like listening to, or a play that we want to um, go and see. Really, it's just thinking, do what you... I remember somebody, um, Jason Clark, um, he's, he's, um, he's in Sheffield. I remember there was one talk that he gave when I, when I worked for UCCF, and he just said, just do what you love and take Jesus with you. <laughs> and, and that just really stuck with me, actually. And so I think one of the one of the things I'd I'd encourage you know just just Christians church leaders whomever they may be is how to encourage one another as brothers and sisters in Christ to do what we do what we love and to take Jesus with us. So if that's if that's sports, join a local sports team and get to know get to know the other people on that on that team. You know, invest in them, care for them, and cultivate those genuine relationships there, so that when they see you. Um, uh, and they're they're prompted and provoked to ask questions. They will. You've you've got that. It's trust, and it's trust that is just so lacking at the at the moment. Particularly thinking about, you know, post truth in, um, issues and, and all sorts of other things which you haven't had time to talk about. Um, but most of the time, most people are thinking, "Who can I trust?" And they're watching mm. you if they know that you're a Christian. And they're looking for reasons to either distrust you or reasons to think, "How can I share my deepest pain with you?" Um, and so what does it look like for us to kind of cultivate those kinds of, of relationships that are genuine? It's not, you know, project kind of centred, but yeah, person centred. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, keep at it. And then presumably when a moment arises, when maybe one of those uh, questions that's suppressed starts to bubble up, you will then at that point have the credibility, the relational credibility to, to, to speak and to be heard and to uh, potentially communicate something that, that would have been very difficult, if not impossible, to communicate to that person had you sort of uh, gone in cold, as it were. Yeah, and then you've got those questions. Have you ever wondered, you know, why, why I'm a Christian or, or whatever it is you're talking about? Oh, why do you say that in response to something that you might be reading or something that's happened? Um, and, oh, what do you mean by that? You know, they're, they're just they're very easy questions to ask, but they keep the conversation going because often we ask the first question of, oh, what do you think? 
But we, we struggle to ask the second follow-up question, which is when, how a conversation develops. And the, I tell you where, this, where, I, where, where I know this bites for me personally, and I doubt I'm very unusual in this. This takes time and this requires patience. And there will often be little discernible fruit. Mm-hmm. And if you're the kind of person who's wired that you want, you want your life to be a series of projects, and you want your life and your ministry to be, well, I achieved this and I ticked this box and I achieved that and ticked that box. This just doesn't fit with that at all, does it? Mm, no. Um, I, mean, I, don't think anybody, I don't think I know anybody who sets out into ministry thinking, let's, let's make people into projects. But it's incredibly easy to fall into mm. when you want a sense of my church is a success, my ministry is a success, mm. I'm a success. Because the kind of thing you're talking about is just going to be days, months, years, mm. relating to people. Yeah. And who know, who knows what the Lord will produce out of that. Yeah. And much of that comes by way of um, Dallas Willard, the philosopher um, and theologian, talked about the ruthless elimination of hurry. Because a lot of the, um, some of the reason why we why we are so project-centered is we're so busy. So we think, well, you know, there are 10 minutes to be able to talk to this person, half an hour to talk to this person. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean that we're not busy, but eliminating that hurry. Because um, again, people know when, you, when you're fidgeting, you need, you need to go and you're not, you're not going to um, cultivate a genuine relationship, you know, in that time. But also it just does take time. My, the friend that I mentioned earlier on, we've been friends now for 22, 23 years. And in some ways it's familiarity at the moment, which is, which is making it even more difficult to speak because mm. either I'm the exception to the rule, which is like, Christy, I know that you're not homophobic. I know that you're not this, but all these other people are. And so that's why for me, encouraging her into community, it would be such a great thing for her to see that this isn't just me. This is, this is a whole, <laughs> these, are, these are redeemed people who are thinking this in, in very similar, but very different ways. And there's diversity, there's unity and diversity and, um, so yeah, and, and and none of this is to say that we shouldn't that we shouldn't speak, you know. Um, I think though more most of us, you know, if there were a spectrum between talking and not talking, most of us would probably be on the talking end of it. So I'm just wanting to kind of for those of us who might be there to encourage us to be more down here. Mm-hmm. But for those of us who might be more down here and, and a bit timid and will never speak, even if there were was the opportunity, just to encourage them with those questions to to start the conversation, you don't need to have all the answers. You don't, you know, need to know, you know, X, Y, and Z about Dawkins or, you know, about the resurrection. In fact, the most um, significant, um, the most significant thing that was ever said to me when I was looking into the claims of Jesus for myself was my mum in response to a question that I asked her when she said, I don't know. And that just spoke volumes to me because I'd been speaking to Christians up to that point who were giving me all these nice ideas and I could tell that they didn't know what they're talking about. They just very want, you know, very much wanted to proffer something. And um, you don't actually know what you're talking about. I can't, I don't trust you because you actually know what you believe for a start. (laughs) Um, But when my mum said, I don't know, I just pierced right through it. And I thought, ah, Mm. there's something here because you're willing to tell me you don't know. And then she said she wanted to find out and we could talk about it together later. And again, that <laughs> that just helped me so much in my own um, yeah, in my own conversations when it when it came to I guess receiving Jesus for myself. So sorry, there's a lot there, but yeah, yeah. um Great. Christy, thank you very much.
really enjoy chatting with you. Thanks. Yeah, thank I, you, Chris. Thanks for standing in, Matt. I'll I'll let you know if you've got the gig or if it'll be no no no. <laughs> Maybe it'll be you and Eric next time. Who knows? Uh, that's, true. <laughs> that's true. Great. Thanks, friends. Thank you.